Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I am here with my extremely skilled and talented co-host. Becca Skutak, if I can even claim those titles. Oh, of course. This is, I'm just building your legacy over the course of these podcasts by adding new epithets every time we do the intro, and then you can just claim them all afterwards, Ugh. like on your CV or something. But, yeah. yeah. This is like generative AI in real time <laughs> with real people, also known as a conversation. That's right. Yes. So welcome to the show. You, of course, if you're listening, well, I mean, hopefully you know what it is, but we talk about the stories behind the startups. If you're a new listener, thank you for joining. And we hope you will leave us a review. We hope also that you will subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and that you will share the episodes around with friends, loved ones, you know, whoever, just passersby on the street. It's, it's fine. We like it. We like it. Word of mouth, best thing ever. But today, we have a special guest. Today, we're talking to Sebastian Simi-Etkovsky, the CEO and co-founder of Klarna, which is a global payment method that allows customers to buy now and pay later. They've also recently moved into being a neobank, and we get into how that's going for them. All right, let's talk to Sebastian. Hey, Sebastian, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. So what we usually have our guests do when they come on the show is explain a bit about their company. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably already familiar with Klarna. You're a bit larger, more established than, than a lot of our guests. But do you want to still give the elevator pitch if you have it to hand? Maybe you're rusty at it. I don't know how often you give it these days. But. Wow. Yeah, it's a good question. I always find that so <laughs> difficult. You know, if you work with something and been nerding about it for 17 years and then you're like supposed to summarize that in 30 seconds it's just so <laughs> difficult but no i, I think you know clonas is a major bank and payments company today we're obviously mostly famous for like the buy now pay later service but actually we do about i could say we're the largest third party payments network in the world larger than than amex mm. slightly smaller than paypal we we have about 150 million consumers worldwide about 30 million in the us we offer them both the ability to pay directly the full amount or also split it in parts. We also offer banking and financial services. So we are a neobank. And then I think we have a pretty distinct and different brand than most other yeah. financial institutions. So that's kind of a summary of it. We're about 6,000 people. We're about $2 billion revenue. Great. Yeah, I think, I mean, even in the time that I've been familiar with it, it seems like you've just grown and added so many things and added so many services and expanded. So I understand that it it can be hard to kind of zero in on like, what exactly are we anymore? But yeah, this is just some trivia for the listeners. But I think I was part of when we launched it on Shopify, because I was at Shopify briefly. And this was quite a few years ago now. But very cool. I remember it. It was exciting. We worked with your team. It's great. This does not bias me in any way, listeners. Two or four. <laughs> two or against. <laughs> great. Uh-uh. Um, but uh yeah i mean amazing what you've been able to achieve Uh, do you want to like take us back if you can to the starting and sort of the origin story and how you even decided to do this to begin with sure yeah so i was i'm an immigrant kid polish background born and raised in sweden when i grew up silicon valley was this magical place far far away i've seen some movie with bill gates versus steve jobs that was pretty much it oh yeah you know, and then among, I unfortunately never learned to code, which is the biggest disaster in my life. But apart from that, I was a business school kind of student, went to the best business school in Sweden. Everyone where there wanted to go to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, work at McKinsey. And for whatever reason, I've always been inspired by like the founder of Ikea and, you know, Richard Branson, whatever, I had this idea that I should start a company. I went on a crazy trip with my co-founder, traveling around the world without flying. 
which I think mm. was a little bit ahead of its time. I'm kind of proud of it nowadays. You know, you're not supposed to fly anymore. Yeah, but wait, so, so just to pause yeah. there, were you, you were taking yeah. like sea vessels and overland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, wow, uh, okay. Cargo ships and, and, you know, trains and buses. And then actually when we finally live in the U.S., which is kind of at the end of the trip, we got to L.A. and we were just like, it's too easy to jump on a Greyhound. So we also hitchhiked from L.A. to New York, which was wow. a, a, an amazing adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was really fun. <laughs> So tons of great stories from that. Came back a little bit too early to continue my semester. So I ended up just looking for a job. I was actually unemployed, even went on like food, uh, you know, I'd get social security services in Sweden, supported me for a while. So I had to put in some food stamps to to pay for my food at that point in time. And eventually ended up having a job in this extremely last place in the world I thought I would be working is this like factoring firm doing account receivables for other businesses. And I'm just like, okay, but now I'm here for a year before I can continue my studies. I'm just going to learn the most out of it. And it was just so hard to sell these services to these customers. Nobody cared. And I was on the phone. I was really a cold calling guy. Like I'm the boiler room guy. I was just lifting the phone. Right. And and then I found out that there was these small e-commerce entrepreneurs that they were really keen on a new payment service. And what was the case, the difference between Sweden and the US at that point in time was in US, everyone had credit cards. In Sweden, everyone had debit cards. Right. So shopping online with debit cards just sucked. What if I don't receive the product? People were really nervous, you know, shopping online. But remember, this is like 04 or 05. So everyone's like, you know, and then traditionally, mail order companies had this like bill me later type of services. So I was like, wow, that would be a great idea. But I even, I even tried to kind of launch that at the company I was working at. But then the company wasn't really serious. And the whole company blew up anyways, later on. And so I left back, go back to my studies. And then I was just like talking to some fellow students like, hey, this would be kind of an interesting idea. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, you go ahead and, and die in, in, in your small office while we go away and make the big bucks in London at Morgan Stanley. So nobody was interested. <laughs> nobody was interested. But there was a shining star for us, right? You got to remember like in Silicon Valley, there was already a lot of like inspiration for you guys. But for us in Europe, there was one company and that was Nicholas Sandstrom and Skype, which just mm-hmm. like paved the way that you know what you can actually in europe create one of these like major internet companies and so that was just an inspiration for us and we just said okay you know the three co-founders kind of dropped out of school started working on this and very different than your typical tech startup because you know the idea of like raising tons of money and burning through it before you became profitable was just not there so we found a business angel she was like okay look guys we asked for thirty thousand bucks she said look i give you 60 you're going to need more and then, you know, I'll take 10% for it. And we were like, okay, great. That's awesome. We can't code. She brought some, a couple of coders on board, mm. got them on board. And then, you know, we started coding. And actually, <laughs> we became, you know, we promised her we would spend $30,000 to become profitable. We spent forty, And then after that, we were profitable. And then the company wow. was profitable for its first 17 years of existence before we had to, you know, go and compete in the US, which is costly. Yeah. So it was very different. Like, we didn't raise a lot of money. We were really like, making money from day one, very sales focused, didn't understand. And, and our challenge was maybe, you know, not your typical Silicon Valley one where like, when we were like, thinking about engineering, we were like, okay, whatever. And then by the way, this, these guys had sold on us, look, you should use this fantastic exotic language called Erlang, which is a functional programming language is going to change the world. And we're like, okay, we'll build a system in that. <laughs> you know, whatever, like we, did, we had no clue what we were doing. Yeah, right? so, yeah, but yeah. Um, it started, work, it, it worked really well with the customers and the merchants. So a lot of our merchants, as they started offer us as a payment alternative, they started seeing you know great lift in sales. Consumer liked the product. Consumer used it. Our credit losses were you know reasonable, so we started making money and then started growing really. 
The difference, again, to the U.S. is we're growing in this market with 10 million people, right? So then we started going to new countries. And at that point of time, it was like, oh, we'll go to the major markets of Norway and Finland and right. <laughs> whatever, uh, until you figure it out it's probably better to go to Germany and even larger markets if you actually want to make a global success out of this. So that, that was kind of a short summary of the beginning. Yeah. So a lot there I resonated with me because I'm also not Silicon Valley based. Like Becca doesn't understand the rest of the world. I'm not, you're not based in Silicon Valley. I know, but you're American. You're American. It's different <laughs> in America. Yeah, exactly. But I'm Canadian. So, you know, we're we're also very conservative. We tend to be conservative, even in the startup scene, right? Like, yes, there's risk, obviously, but it it's very different and people want to see, you know, positive business metrics really, really early on, right? Which is kind of now becoming I mean, anytime there's a downturn that sort of becomes the situation across the board. So but, they say. Uh, so they say, right. With although they're still making bets and mm. burning money and whatever else. But, <laughs> um, but but you know, there is a difference though. There is definitely a difference. Yeah, and yeah. like, you know, if you in the US, if you nail it, right, the market is so big, the revenue will follow. Yes. That is not necessarily the case if you're in Sweden, mm. right? Like if you have a successful business in Sweden, you can easily just by indirect cost eat up your whole revenue, like because there's just not a big enough market, right? Like so yeah. the, the, there is some reason for why that works more in the US, I think. But what were your biggest challenges then early on? I mean, were none of your co-founders technical? Like you yourself, you mentioned aren't, but okay. So that's kind of a big like stumbling block going in, right? Because typically there's, you know, maybe one person, usually one person is technical or something. And that kind of helps out with the early days of coding and stuff. Yeah, I don't know if this, I, like, I remember Sequoia telling me at some point in time that like, they have never invested in a company with no technical co-founders and mm. they will never do it again. I don't know what they meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, uh, I haven't asked more and maybe I don't want to know more. But, you know, no, I think that was, I definitely found that one of the biggest challenges being a young manager was managing things that you don't know yourself, right? So mm. it's one thing I was coming from on the sales marketing side. I understood how a great sales process looked like and how you close contracts and get business done. But I had no clue when somebody was telling me, you know, we need to code this and it's going to take 12 months. Okay. You were like, I believe you, but because I have right. no reason like, not to. <laughs> right. so, so it was very struggling for me. And I think also because the business started growing fairly big, you know, fast by Swedish standards, at least. Yeah. Right. So we were growing fairly fast at that point of time. You know, I, I always felt that running an organization up to 100 people you kind of know people, you, you know that. But the second you went above 100, I, I was very lost. So to me, if I look at Klarna between maybe 09 to you know 13 or something, I felt that we totally lost traction, right? So, you know, I was running around in tons of meetings, but there was really nothing happening. Like the company, like we started hiring all these senior executives, we bring them on board, people with tons of opinions. And, and there was a lot of discussions, but I don't really feel that we were doing that well. We had an mm. underlying momentum in the original business that made it look so our PL growth looked great, investors were happy. But when I was looking at the internal momentum, our ability to turn out new products or improve our services and so forth, I felt they were very, very limited. And so it was very frustrating for me that period of time to figure that out. Yeah, I think, I mean, that echoes the experience of a lot of people in the growth phase, especially the first like large growth phase when they're bringing on a lot of that management apparatus. And you just, there's a frustration with the fact that you're not like translating work into output directly anymore, right? Like, I mean, Toby has expressed that a lot at Shopify and I think continues to, right? We just saw him wipe the board of all meetings with more than one right. person or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how did you kind of, 
come to grips with that? Or how did you deal with that? And what kind of processes do you think other people can take to either avoid that or to correct it when it happens? Well, I actually think that sometimes I feel fortunate that in my opinion, Klarna wasn't this like, we didn't build a search engine that became this money printing machine in our basement. And then everyone is looking at us and every management idea that we come up with is labeled as a massive success just because we have a money printing machine in our basement. So Mm. like, you know, I think when Google was announcing this 20% creative time, we were like, okay, oh my God, it's Google. And they're saying you should give everyone 20% of creative time. So we obviously tested that. Nothing happened. No new products came out of that. Like we were like, okay, you know, we put we put Lego in the conference rooms. We took away the Lego in the conference room. Like, you know, like we, we tried all these things. And so like, I think because what we didn't recognize just yet at that point of time is that the question wasn't like, was 20% of creative time something that Google could afford due to the money printing machine in the basement? Or was it generally actually what had created the money printing machine in the basement, right? And I think that's often what people get the other way around and then potentially it is, right? So I think it was it was very confusing to try to, you were seeing all these impressions, people writing about things that works or doesn't work and, and so forth. And it was very uh, difficult. I think to that also in our case, we quickly came to believe that our product would not work in the US. And we always right. believed that the US was going to be important to create a truly global company. So in 09 or 10, we decided to pivot the company, right? And the pivot was that we were going to move from offering this buy now, pay later service only and become a full checkout of the merchant, right? And at that point of time, we had identified some interest. I remember doing this board presentation to my uh, shareholders at that point of time. I was like, okay, look, there's going to be this opportunity to offer like a global checkout solution that helps, you know, merchants sell in every country in the world, solving for shipping, solving for local payment methods and so forth. And there's three companies that we should be on the watch that we think kind of see this opportunity. There's one, this young Collison, you know, youth out of Ireland that seems to have like realized that, you know, building beautiful APIs and things that developers like, that's a great idea, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's these Dutch guys that have been in the industry for a while that know what the heck they're doing and they're called Adyen. And like, I even had this fun because I went down to see Peter, the CEO and co-founder, because at that point of time, my company was bigger than his. And I said, Peter, you got to sell your business to me because I'm just going to run you over. <laughs> that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad beginning of our relationship. I tell you, it took me a couple of, couple of years to repair that relationship afterwards. But, 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 but good anyways, job trying, I think. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, we're trying. I was trying to threaten him to, to sell the business. But anyways, and then we said PayPal is going to continue to do well, right? And, and the funny thing is, so we were going to go down this checkout idea and we actually launched a product, got some momentum about it. And then I could just see how it was slowing down, right? Hmm. So a way that I, I still kind of find these emails, you know, written in 12 or 13, where I'm like, okay, Adyen just announced 50 local payment methods in Asia. We were struggling to add one local payment in Germany that we also owned. And I was hmm. like, Come on, I can just see that the momentum of our product is not moving at the same pace, right? Yeah. And it was extremely frustrating for me because I started seeing the momentum of Stripe and Adyen. And I was like, you know what? We're doing something wrong. We have money. We were actually larger than them. We had realized the same vision, but we failed and they won, right? And, and I think the nail in the coffin in our case was when Daniel Ek, my friend at Spotify, signs an agreement with Adyen. He's my neighbor and he goes to the worst competitor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay it's time to look yourself in the mirror in 15 and say, 
we failed at this, right? And so at that point of time, it created this, and I felt that between 10 and 15, it's not like our business didn't grow. We grow from a billion dollar, we got the unicorn valuation in 10, and then we got a $2 billion valuation in 15. So it was a, an okay, good outcome, even for right. those investors, but it just wasn't what we aspired to do. And so in 15, at that point of time, I had the benefit of taking a new management team on board. So I kind of reshuffled the whole management team. And instead of having these external executives hired from all over the world, I took internal people that had done really amazing things within Klarna and I promoted them hmm. to, even if it felt scary. And I was like, wow, are they, you know, are they senior enough? Are they going to be able to deal with this much responsibility? Yeah, yeah. And then we basically were in this kind of, in 15, we were like, okay, this checkout idea, Adyen and Stripe is killing it. Forget about it. What are we going to do? Like, where should we take the company? I mean, we could sell it, we could IPO it and whatever and say bye-bye, but it was just not never what we aspired to do. So we sat down and we said, okay, let's pivot again, right? And that's when we created the vision and the direction we're on it now. So that was like one thing. Can we create a new big hairy goal that we really believe in that we think is exciting? Because we realized to some degree we had had the correct business insight in 10 to recognize this massive opportunity. I mean, Adidas and Stripe combined, it's probably over $100 billion in market mm -hmm. cap, right? So like we have realized, we understood the market and where it was going. We just didn't execute, right? right. And so then we said, is there a new opportunity? This is kind of when we went in the path where I'm now kind of neobank, shopping application direction, super app, whatever. But then the next question was, what are we going to do differently, right? Like how are we going to execute differently this time around? And then we started really rethinking our whole operating model and the way we were working internally, and we started seeing momentum coming. So we started actually seeing that finally we started seeing results. So, Well, one thing I was going to ask about is since you guys did get started in 2005, and I know a big conversation over the last year has been, oh, so many startups, so many investors have never been through a downturn. But you guys have. You've been through different market cycles at this point. And I'm curious, especially because you guys have gone through these different pivots and sort of had this market awareness, did going through that period early on sort of help inform any of these decisions or sort of help guide as the market started to heat up again? Or do you think it helped guide you now? I'm just curious because so many companies just haven't gone through that yet. You guys have. Yeah, I think that, I think yes. I mean, I do, as much as I still am a big fan and always going to be a big believer in the drive of youth. There is some value to experience, right? Like, to just be clear. So, so I do feel that, like, the fact that we've seen that when COVID hit, some of my investors started calling me and saying, you will have to cut down on your investments. You have to pull back. And I said, look, I'm not running a small boat anymore. I'm running a container ship. I think it's worth waiting a few weeks to evaluate if it's really that, right? And at that point in time, that was the right thing to do because it turned out it was an acceleration for a few years instead, right? And so we didn't, even though we saw some competitors actually even, you know, cutting down because they wanted to act quickly in that situation. What happened in our case was we had already in our business plan to do a fundraising this year. And we were out in the market, slowly starting to talk in the market around March. Mm -hmm. And it was just like every conversation we had was like, oh, we really like the business. Amazing. Next year, PayPal is down 10%, which was like the typical piece. Like, so, you know, like every, every week, basically our peers dropping dramatically. And, and when I saw that, potentially, I hope to believe that it was based on that experience that I've had. I said, okay, look, this is it. This is that change. Right. It's not just a you know, temporary fluky thing. And then I think the conclusion then was that like, for everyone involved, it's going to be a benefit to be moving decisively as much as it's tough and challenging to take decisions necessary. 
we're going to have to move fast yeah. and be you know, right at it. And I think to some degree, we also get this downside to that because I think at the beginning when people reported about Klarna's layoffs and the new valuations, there was still a tendency to describe it as Klarna-specific rather than markets changing. Right. I think today people think about it slightly differently. And it's it's strange to some degree that that was the case in May, June, because you know, already the publicly listed companies had already taken a massive beating anyway. So, yes. but yeah, I think it helps. And obviously you are a little bit more like, it's never emotionally easy to go through these situations, but I think at least you have a little bit more of like, you know, you know, you're not, it's not the end of the world. Like things are going to sort out. You're going to like, you are probably a little bit more like, okay, calm at least. I'm not saying that you're obviously very challenging. It's very saddening. But at least I think there's a calmness to it, a steady hand, right? Like type of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Yeah. I, I hope. I hope to believe at least. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. You do still, as media has happily pointed out. Doesn't mean that we haven't made a lot of mistakes in those. But still, I think that like at least you you can feel a little bit like okay, you have to do it. It's difficult, but things will get better. And I think you can emit that as well because obviously you have to be very mindful of the people that. In this case, we had to unfortunately part with. But you also have to be mindful of the people that are staying, right? Like and and, mm-hmm. and make sure that they feel comfortable and safe and, and believe in, in the future and stuff. I know when you yeah. raised that round back in July, I want to say, mm-hmm. and you were very transparent and candid about the change in valuation. And that's just not what we've seen. And we're starting to see it a little more now that startup founders are more comfortable talking about like why stuff is getting valued at a lower amount this time around and stuff like that. But you were kind of the first founder I came across who was just open about talking about it. This is why, this is what happened. And I'm curious if being so public about it, was that an intentional choice or did you feel like you had to, or just, I'm curious, like walk me through what that was like, just being so transparent about that process. Well, I think probably a little bit of it comes like, you know, we're in an odd situation because actually in Sweden, every company's finances, private or public, are public. So I can go and look up a private company's finances as much as the public ones on an annual basis, not on a quarterly basis, but on an annual basis. So to some degree, it comes a little bit from like the environment in which I exist here in Stockholm, Sweden. And then another thing that I think people don't really understand, in my opinion, is that Klarna, we were early advised, and I think it was a good advice. We were early advised, don't do pref shares, don't do liquidation preferences, do common shares only. So we always only raise common rounds, right? And our valuations were always in common stock. And then in addition to that, because we became a bank and we're a fully licensed bank, this round, we weren't even allowed to do a pref share structure. So we could only do common. So there was nothing to hide, right? I I think Mm -hmm. to some degree, I do believe that like some of the companies I've seen raise in this environment post, I believe the valuation is not really the same. Right. It's different, right? But it's obviously very difficult in a non-public environment to figure that out from a media perspective of like, what does this really represent? So I think that there was also that element. And I think also in transparency, I mean, I do believe that like, you know, we would have loved to continue investing at the level we were investing. Mm-hmm. Like we, I still believe that there's this massive banking oligopoly and you know these massive companies with trillion dollar market caps that are there to be disrupted in this industry i don't think they've really served customers best interest well i think there's an amazing opportunity to make a difference in this space and i think also what people tend to forget as they look at it now a year ago our burden rate was you know close to a billion dollars a year that sounds a lot but if you put that into perspective 
of the company reaching you know forty five to fifty billion dollar market cap, you're looking at a two percent dilution on an annual basis to sustain that investment rate. So as long as investors were supporting and leaning into the future as much as they were a year ago, it's actually reasonable to be investing that much into the future, right? Because people are giving you that money and, and, and it makes sense. It's almost an unlimited addressable market when you're you know, in fintech and financial services because it's so massive as an industry. It's one of the largest industries in the world. So it's not actually entirely off, right? But then obviously the sentiment shifts and people want to see profitability now. And then I just wanted to be honest with them. Okay, so, you know, it is what it is, but we will adopt, right? And we, we were very clear when we were fundraising so we, we had this beautiful pitch that we created in March, April, which was like, oh, look at the future. Look at the industry we're going to disrupt. And then in May, that pitch was reduced to back to profitability. <laughs> in 12 months, how do we become profitable again? Like that was like the end pitch at the end of it. So. Yeah, but I mean, that's a very reasonable approach. And I think it's one that a lot of people just didn't take or don't know how to take. Like they're very head in the sand or whatever, like. You know, I've heard a lot of companies that just had encountered that same thing and were kind of like just totally gobsmacked by it, like ran into a funding environment where all of a sudden people they were talking to, you know, just a few weeks prior who had been like, great, I mean, you look great. The business looks great. I'm really happy about it. And then a few weeks later, it's like, I, there's no chance I'm touching this with a 10 foot mm. pole and not for years now. Mm. Right. I guess it gets to what you were talking about with the maturity and with like the experience of having seen it previously that you were able to do that. And, you know, I think you're right too in assessing that you received criticism that maybe was undue at the time because you were early and being somewhat prescient, whereas other people were dragging their heels a little bit, right? But it must be tough. Like how much goes into that decision? How much goes into making the call of like, oh, we are going to do this and this is going to be the result and this is going to be the public perception, but long-term it's going to be the right call to make? Well, I think that, you know, that's the role of a CEO, right? Which is the difficult part of the job or a founder in that sense, is that I have multiple stakeholders to take into consideration, right? So I have my shareholders, I have my employees, I have in this case kind of a, both employees that potentially will leave and employees that are going to stay. Mm -hmm. I have regulators, but I also have customers, you know, I have my merchant partners. And so, you know, you don't have the luxury of taking a single person perspective, right? Right. And I think that like, you know, even when you ended up in these typical internal Slack conversations, like, why can't we all keep our computers when we're leaving? You're being cheap, right? Like, and, <laughs> and maybe, and, and you know, maybe that was fair. Maybe we should have had, but it's also like, it's easy to state that in a Slack channel, then you calculate the value of those computers and you realize that you're looking at like, okay, but you know, it's not like money is an unlimited resource. If I then give the computers away, that may be that if I still need to hit the same budget, I may need to remove two or three more headcounts, right? Like there's a trade-off right. between all this. So like, and that's often the kind of complexity. Now, I'm not saying it's that obviously black and white. Obviously, there's always room and you can do things. But to some degree, there is an aspect of that. that there's everything is, and that's, that's the difficult thing, I think, is to try to, but, but I do believe the most important thing, you're not going to do everything right. It's just like the most important thing, in my opinion, is to be willing to act fast. And we had, a, I had a discussion with a board member about whether we should announce the restructuring and the layoffs before we closed our funding round mm -hmm. or not, right? And I think in this case, I actually decided against some advice to do it before. And um, in this case, I, you know, this is very rare that I have, I'm right, I'm usually wrong. So, but, but in this case, I actually think, I think actually, I actually was right that like, I think it also, you gotta remember that like we wanted and we needed the support of investors as well. And, and unfortunately, the way reality looks like, 
it was important for them to see that we were taking actions yeah. and moving, right? And that's important for me, both for our customers, our merchants, and as well as for the remaining 6,000 employees. It, and it's never easy. I'm not talking about the empathetical side. It's just very sad and right. very tough, but but also like what you have to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw some of that this week and just to pull back the curtain a bit on like some internal discussion. Like I think we had, it was Carbon Health or something, like just laid off a huge amount of people, I think last week. And then they just announced a $100 million funding round from CVS like early this week, right? And yeah. optically, it's like that, yeah. it, it hurts. It's going to hurt the people that were involved in that layoff and everything else too. But it's also probably just business sense, exactly the right move to make behind the scenes. And for similar reasons that you're discussing, right? But it, it, there's always a human cost and it's always going to be, you know, painful and difficult. But it sounds like even in that case, it's like, yeah, but to the ultimate benefit of the people who remain is this still, right? Like, ha- had we not done it this way, it's going to hurt them worse. There's going to be more people that have to go. Like, there's all kinds of additional problems that you run into. Yeah, I, and I, at least what we tried to do from our side, it's hard to predict the future, but we tried to make sure that, like, let's do it properly in one time rather than do it in, in, in small increments. Right. tranches, like, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. But but again, like, Every company is unique and there's a lot of way of doing things and so forth. So I'm, I'm not necessarily advising people. I think everyone has to look at their own prerequisites and, and how they do this. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, the other question I have out of that is how does it affect your kind of long-term planning and, you know, that ambitious goal that you were talking about that you had to kind of put aside and then say, well, we need to get back to profitability in 12 months. Like, are those plans just in reserve? Do you reshape them? Do you throw them out and start again? Like, how do you think about that? I think in, in our case... After so many years, I think it's like just as much as we identify the business opportunity, the kind of mix of Stripe and Adyen in, in 10, and we were right about it. We feel very, very convinced that the direction we're at now, like I, I genuinely believe that in financial services and banking, there's going to be a massive disruption. I think the retail banks and the legacy players incumbents are under extreme threat. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, what we're seeing in fintech right now is actually to the benefit of fintech because a year ago, everyone had to worry if you're a CEO of a bank. Now it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It was just this fad, you know, <laughs> let's go back right. and do things like we've always done, right? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And at the same point of time, Nubank is killing it. Revolut is killing it. Klarna is killing it. Like there are a couple of players that are out there. They're just like every day, you know, growing mm-hmm. in this kind of, uh, Chime is also doing well. I mean, there's a couple of ones. So to me, it was just like, no, the, the end goal is exactly the same. Mm. But obviously, we will just have to go about that end goal differently. And we'll have to focus more on other things than we used to do before. But I've been ex- actually one of my proudest aspects of all of this is just how the 6,000 people were today, how extremely fast and how they really embrace this shift, right? So this focus shift from just grow, grow, grow. To like, okay, let's find the opportunities for profitability. Mm. And I, I actually, this was one of the advice from Daniel Eck at Spotify that I really enjoyed a few years ago when I was talking to him about like, how does he balance between growing and efficiency and, sure. and, and stuff like that? And he just said, I don't think you can. I mean, mm. I, you actually don't think you can do both at the same point of time. And I was like, oh, it's probably true. So like, to some degree, it's not necessarily from my perspective, like it's been very growth oriented for a few years. We've given it all. It's not entirely unhealthy to give now one or two years to really, you know, focus right. on the efficiency side and make sure that we're doing the right things and that, you know, and stuff like that. So to us, none of the aspirations of where we're going right now has changed. And I actually feel like 
in 15, to me, it was already clear that Stripe and Adyen was winning. But I don't think all investors and the collective had fully appreciated just what an amazing momentum these businesses were building up. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very similar to me with us and some of the other neobanks and kind of, you know, in the vicinity or square block for that sake as well. That like, there's a tremendous underlying momentum in these businesses and there's a massive addressable market. So like, I, I just think that that's just, to some degree, we're actually going to benefit from the fact that like big legacy incumbents are now going to say, oh, good. This was just a fad, right? Right. They'll return back to the comfort of their inertia and they'll be able to kind of out-innovate them. Right? right. And then also, like, unfortunately for some of our smaller startup clones or competitors, the downside for them, obviously, is that, you know, funding is drying up, right? So yeah. for us that kind of are over that hurdle, I actually think it's to some degree beneficial. Not that I would have wished for it, but it's not necessarily for the long-term business opportunity a bad thing. Right, yeah, because a lot of the newer ones don't have the option to move into a profitability mode, right? It's like they're nowhere near that. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and I'll give you a, you know, a not-so-well-hidden secret, but Klarna makes a billion dollars in gross profit in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, just to give you like <laughs> – so like, yes, we've been investing heavily and growing fast in the U.S., and as a consequence of that, we've been posting EBT losses on the total – Right. But we have a very strong, solid business in, in Europe that is extremely profitable. So Right. You were doing that as a choice. It wasn't like you opened a huge exactly, money right. door that you can no longer close, right? Just, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually something that I sometimes, especially tri- more traditional business media, I, I find it a little bit odd that you kind of mix losses with investments. Because mm-hmm. to some degree, these are investments, right? Like, right. yes, I'm showing red numbers because I'm investing heavily, not because I'm loss-making and I haven't non-functional business model. There are companies like that, but that's not necessarily the case for all of these companies. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the other thing that I would just say around that or ask you around that is like, is it the case that you then just move up some of the plans for profitability? Like you turn on the profit dial earlier than you would have otherwise in favor of growth? Or is it more like, oh, let's pause those initiatives for now and then come back to them? Or is it a mix of both? So in our case, we had to make those changes in the size of the organization that we mm-hmm. had to go about. And we did that. But, you know, obviously there were some new teams and some new stuff that we were recruiting for much further long term. But we did challenge the remaining 6,000 people a little bit and said, look, you know, the agenda and the plans are the same. You figure it out. Mm. And they're figuring it out, right? And I understand that they're making trade-offs and stuff like that, but they're figuring it out, right? But what we did do is change some of the, to your point, like priorities, right? Right, right. Um, so there's some stuff like they started focusing more on, you know, optimizations and making sure that, you know, we weren't found different things. And there's been these amazing stories that are shared internally of like, you know, somebody realized that nobody had cared to optimize our text messages that people use for OTP well well enough. And actually today at our size, we're sending like millions of those. So actually that was like a cost saving of 20 million bucks that, you know, just had, you know, there's a lot of forgivable sins in the good times. (laughs) So like... That's exactly it, right? So, and that's again what was amazing. I've been so humbled and, and and grateful to everyone in the company how they shifted their focus on the amazing things that they've accomplished since then, right? So, yeah, we you know we're scraping by. Yeah, I think more than, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're basically out of time here, Sebastian. But I really, I it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you being so direct and transparent too about how to handle the current times, which are 
doom and gloom, but me and you, I think, have the advantage of having lived through one of these before and worked through one of these before. Becca, I don't know if you worked through the 2008 one. Probably not, right? I was 12. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So no. (laughs) I just love people make jokes about that on Twitter, like, oh, well, what were you doing during the last financial crisis? And someone's like, I was attending a middle school dance. <laughs> but I mean, that was what it was like for me for the for the 2000 one. Like, you know, like the actual dot-com burst. I was just hearing kind of the stories of it and, you know, all secondhand. But it's really useful to talk about having some perspective on it and to talk about like, what are the opportunities that are there as well as the challenges that come along? And I think, Sebastian, you've done a great job kind of outlining that for us. So, so thanks very much. Well, thank you. And that's the only, like, I've already believed that, like, you cannot, like, I can't change the reality of the world out there, right? But what I can impact on my own actions and, and how I act about it, right? That's the only thing I think. And, and then again, I, you know, I think leaning into it more than anything else, right, uh, is important. I always think about that when you sit in the restaurant, right, and something's wrong in the kitchen, the worst thing you know is like all the waiters disappear. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, it's okay. I realize it. Like things are bad. You mess up. You do mistakes. But I mean, people have to, you have to lean into it. You have to like go and face it. Right. Like, and if, if the waiter does that and comes and says, I'm really sorry, terribly sorry, your steak is late because there's something wrong. Yeah, you're fine. Right. Right. Like, I, I mean, you, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be disappointed. This and that, but it's always about like, you have to lean into it and it's painful and it's, it's, it's tough and it's, difficult but that's the only the only way yeah yeah and that analogy i think the alternative is what shut down the restaurant the, sh- the chefs and the waiters all leave out the back door you never eat a steak you don't get a steak at all right let alone a right. one that you had to wait a little while for so, yeah. Yeah. uh yeah thanks again and um yeah we really appreciate you coming on thank you for having me All right, that was our chat with Sebastian. I suppose we are talking earlier and talking again now. I was trying to do a BNPL joke, but there isn't one. But Becca, (laughs) (laughs) what do you think of Klarna and kind of how they are positioned right now? No, I thought that was a great conversation. I thought he was really kind of transparent about all of the things they've had to do last year with the valuation cut and some of the layoffs. But the one thing I wish we had gotten to, and I just felt like I couldn't squeeze it in because he was being so transparent about those other topics that I didn't want to slow him down or cut him off, was sort of this notion of the buy now, pay later aspect of their business. Obviously, that's not the only thing that Klarna does, but they fairly recently entered the U.S. And I think just based on sort of chatting with friends and other people who don't have a super huge knowledge of the startup ecosystem. I think they're mainly known here, at Mm. least so far, for that aspect. And I know there's sort of growing negative sentiment about buy now, pay later. It's pushing a lot of Gen Zs into debt. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are not fully sure what they're doing when they sign up for it. So I wish we had talked to him a little bit more about kind of how Klarna can help, one, quell customers' fears about buy now, pay later. Because when done right, it's totally a fine service, of course. Sure. And also just make people aware that Klarna does all of these other things, too. I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, I think he was really... I don't know if he was intentionally doing this, but I think it's partly that this is their expansion is into this neobank sort of market. But he was also talking about that aspect of it a lot. And and it might be to remind people that there is a, an identity for the company beyond the BNPL stuff, especially for our audience, which tends to be US and definitely associates them with that space. Yeah, I think it's it's too bad. You're right. We would have been interesting to get into it. I think it's especially interesting for someone like Klarna because Klarna's original value prop wasn't even really that. It was just 
modernizing the payment system for a market that never really got into credit cards in a way that America got into credit cards. So it's kind of ironic that they ended up in this primarily credit facility business, which is what BMPL things are, even if we don't think of them that way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like their whole thing was, well, we just make it so you can pay online with your debit card as opposed to a credit card because originally like Swedish people and then German people, like they don't use credit cards and this is like they don't, right? So yeah, it it would have been curious about his thoughts. It's one of those things where it's like, well, we'll get him next time, Becca. Mm -hmm. We had a good enough time. I think he'll come back on. But yes, it's clear that they are looking ahead at least macro, like at the company level to a time where that is perhaps not their core value proposition and probably not their core identity, right? Because he talked a lot about this neobank opportunity and how big he sees the neobank opportunity as being right now. I was curious what you thought of that because it's not like a, it's a new conversation around the neobanks, right? So do you think something's changed now that makes it, that makes the incumbents more susceptible to disruption than they, they ever have been before? Yeah, neobanks is such a weird category in my mind because on the one hand, I'm like, this is great. A lot of neobanks bring people, you know, quote unquote, unbanked people into having access to these kind of services. And a lot of the innovation that they have is where ends up benefiting those of us who do use a traditional bank because the traditional bank ends up trying to adopt it or trying to sort of create something similar. So that's all good and fun. But I just, the neobank thing is interesting because I still, and I say this about Chime, I say this about a lot of things, I still don't know anyone who uses them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just yeah. do, and I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying I have like a ton of friends or like I know kind of like what the trends are for like broader consumer behavior or anything like that. But there's so many, they say they claim such a huge market share and there's such a big market opportunity that you'd think you'd at least know someone who used one of them. Right. But I don't still. So I'm always like, that just like taints my view on it a little bit. I'm like, this is a great idea. And if they are successful in it, that's awesome. These sort of innovative banks are very much needed. But I just have a hard time grasping like the adoption and the total addressable market. Yeah, I do too. I think it's obvious to me from one side like that the incumbent banks have like a lot of power and a lot of stagnation, right? But the, your side is equally obvious that like if you look around, you don't see many people flocking to the available options that are out there now, even if they are dissatisfied with the service they are receiving, right? Mm-hmm. But now that I'm trying to think of it and bring to mind, like, do I know people who are using those services? I don't now, but I did during kind of the first wave of this type of thing. Mm-hmm. I remember, I'll, I'll name check him, why not? He's a, he's a friend, friend of the show, friend of TechCrunch, but Drew Olenoff had some kind of like neo bank account and he brought in the card to the office in San Francisco and was like, oh, look at this card. And we all looked at the card and we're like, oh, it's cool. That's a cool card. Maybe it was simple. That seems like right. Anyways, the long story is like the bank went away eventually and like it was a mess. Like <laughs> stuff was basically cut off and accessible for a little while and then he got it out. But like, you know, it was a headache. And I think that's always the challenge you have with this stuff is like, oh, do you have the reliability? Because for whatever else they have, most of these banks have that reliability, the the age-old institutional banks, right? Particularly in countries like Canada, where I am, where it's effectively a government-supported monopoly when it comes to the banking system. Like, there's only really five, and there's not really allowed to be any others, essentially. So, yeah, it's a really tough market. I think he had made some good points about how 
there are signs that this could be the turning point. Like the fact mm-hmm. that, yeah, you have a economic downturn and then maybe it, it means that the slate of competitors is wiped clean, but in a way that allows someone like Klarna, who is like, not starting from zero, right? Right. And has a successful business to build off of that's in the financial services products industry, maybe has a better chance of succeeding than some of the smaller people. Definitely. And I think if some people, say, use the buy now, pay later services through Klarna and then are thinking of switching banks and know that, oh, I I did that thing with Klarna and I bought a Peloton, even though I think Peloton's afterpay. But like... I think so, yeah. Because I'm doing that right now. But if you <laughs> if you end up buying something through those services and then you are thinking of another bank and you see that they have those options and you had a good experience with them, I mean, there's definitely truth to that for sure. And I always say, I'm not going to say who I bank with, but every time I call customer service, I have to be like talked off the ledge of like not closing all my accounts, right. cutting off all my cards. And like this yeah. happened last Friday. So like, I, I totally get <laughs> that there's always going to be kind of momentum for people looking for other options. So if, especially if they can get that in with the buy now, pay later, with the other services, people will get that name recognition and then maybe, yeah, definitely could be help them in a way that some of the other fintechs in the space don't have. Yeah. I give them definitely a fighting chance. I think I want to just commend you on your good OPSEC for not naming your bank on an audio product that will be publicly disseminated <laughs> on behalf of our security reporter, Zach Whitaker. <laughs> but, um, you know, I really enjoyed talking to him, though. I liked his straightforward approach to things. I thought he was very candid and matter of fact about a lot of issues, especially about having to do layoffs and having to deal with a financial downturn and having to deal with the realities of valuation. And interestingly, the level of scrutiny that is available and expected in Europe for a privately held company versus North America mm-hmm. too, which is not something I was really aware of previously. No, me, me either. That's super interesting. I know the SEC has like floated a couple times that they would like like to do something similar to that here, but I mean, nothing's happened. So right. that's definitely interesting to hear that they do that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was our chat with Sebastian, and uh, thanks for listening. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hold up. 